Are you a scaling SaaS founder? Ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel Podcast, where our community is like an exclusive yacht club. Minus the yacht, but loaded with smooth sailing. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. I hope B2B SaaS founders like you scale from seven figures, which is good, to eight and nine figures, which is outstanding. Together, we supercharge revenue growth, create premium valuation, and craft a business you're proud of and a life of impact and freedom that you love. Last week, we talked about community-led growth, had Lloyd Lobo on the show, and are continuing that discussion today. So think back, what is the best community that you've ever been a part of? I asked this of a few dozen CEO friends over the last month or so. I had conversations about it at Saster as well. And everyone from our community at Champion Leadership Group said, you know, it's the best community they've been a part of. And they went on and on about it. That made me really, really happy. So I had to take that off the table. And so I said, okay, besides that, you know, what is the best community you've ever been a part of? And a few mentioned something that they were currently doing, a business community, church groups, some friend groups that, that did things together, poker night, that kind of thing. But many of them had to think back to things like college. Uh, you know, college fraternity or sports teams or things like that. But I think it's really important to think about community and what is it that makes great communities that you've been a part of and why were those the best communities for you? And for me, that's a really easy thing. And, and I have to say, I absolutely love Champion Leadership Group and the community we have there. And I've tried to model it after my best community experience. And that was a community that was, you know, a, a complete surprise to me, completely shattered my expectations. It was called CEO NetWeavers. It was based here in Dallas, founded by a guy named John Casey. A man, I have tremendous respect and admiration for Harvard MBA entrepreneur, CEO, uh, runs an executive search firm today and you know, is, is just a fantastic guy. But what really sets John apart is servant leadership. And back when I joined CEO NetWeavers, you know, years ago, you know, I'd heard the term and kind of understood the concept. I'm like, yeah, that, that's a cool thing. But to this day, I have never seen it lived out like John and like other members in that group. And, and he was, you know, very influential in putting that group together and kind of setting the, the ground rules and bringing people in. But CEO NetWeavers was, uh, for, for lack of a better term, it was a networking group. Of uh, I grew to about, I don't know, 300 or so seated and in transition CEOs here in DFW. But this wasn't your usual business network where folks kind of swap business cards like Pokemon cards and had surface level conversations while looking over your shoulder to, you know, see who else might be out there for them to go talk to. I mean, networking like that honestly just kind of disgusts me. I, I just can't stand those types of environments. And this was something that was completely, completely different. And there was a magic phrase at CEO NetWeavers. And you heard it all the time. And it was really simple. It was, how can I help you? Not like, hey, wh what can you do for me? You know, how can I help you? Kind of like the, the Jedi Order for Business you know, minus the lightsabers. And the thing was, is that was a genuine question. There was no quid pro quo. There was no agenda, no ulterior motives. 
but you had CEOs, you had millionaires, billionaires, I mean, powerful and influential people taking time out of their lives to help me. Do you believe that? And, and I was really floored and I wanted to help them in any way that I could. I wanted to absolutely give back. I wanted to, to embrace that culture. How can I help you? No request was too big, too small. I wanted to give. And that was really the pinnacle of servant leadership. And something that made that group really, really special. And it's one of the reasons that I've tried to model that and, and carry that vision forward. And that really goes you know, back to, to that group and to, to John Casey. So what is the secret recipe? What makes a community more addictive than a Netflix binge watch? Let's break it down. I was thinking about this and thinking, what was it? And it came up with three things. And there are probably more if I thought about it some more. But uh, let me just break it down and give you three that I think really made that special. The first gem in the community crown is that people are valuable relationships, not a means to an end. And I think that's one of the things that really just, just disgusts me about normal networking is that people are treated like stepping stones to get somewhere. You know, they're, they're used as things, they're used as pawns to get some objective instead of treated like people and valuable relationships that they are. You know, think about, you know, reciprocity over transaction. It's like the, the potluck dinner of business relationships. You've probably been to like potluck dinners, things like that. Everybody brings something. So everybody brings something to the table, expecting nothing, but enjoying everything. And I think that's very much what a great community is. So you're, you're really bringing it in and not expecting anything, but you're enjoying everything. You're, you're getting as you're giving. So not looking to, to go in and extract value, but value comes out of that. They come out of relationships. So imagine a SaaS network where competitors even share tips on reducing churn. I mean, now that's value you cannot put a price tag on. The second one is authenticity over posturing. Another thing that, that just drives me crazy about uh, most networking things is honestly, it's exhausting. It's, you know, putting up the, the posture and how awesome you are and how oh, everything's great. I could never use any help because I'm perfect. But forget about the LinkedIn facades and the corporate jargon and the, the perfect shot on Instapot. You know, in an exceptional community, you show up as you are, quirks and all. And I'll tell you, in CEO NetWeavers and, and even Champion Leadership Group, there are some quirky people. Uh, I was probably one of them. I probably still am one of them. But it's like the, the business version of the judgment-free zone, you know, where the CEO of a startup and a Fortune 500 company can trade war stories without a care. They can have a conversation because they're people. We are warriors together in this battle of business building. And it's not, you know, I'm better than you or, you know, you, you've done this big thing that I haven't or anything like that. We're just, we're all together. Like I said last week, brothers and sisters in arms. I think that's really, really important. It's just that authenticity over posturing or having to put up a face. And the third one is long-term investment over short-term payoff. You think about networking groups, networking meetings, a lot of them, it is about, you know, how can I find that, that shortest path to get what I'm looking for and extract value and get out of here. Uh, but it's long-term investment. It's investment in people. It's investment in relationships. We're talking about a bond that lasts longer than your average Windows update, right? This is where trust gets baked in. And before you know it, you've got a network that not only endorses your skills, but also defends your honor. And it's the type of place that you want to bring people. You want to come in there and you want to hang your hat and you want to stay a while. 
Now let's tie it all together. Could you imagine if your brand community embodied these qualities? If that's what you were known for, we're talking about transforming customers into allies, prospects into proponents, and skeptics into diehards. So what about your community? What are your values? What do you want your community to be, to do, to say, to care about? You intrigued? Are you thinking about it? Well, then let's do more than just flirt with the ideas. Let's commit and build something amazing together. Let's ditch the old idea of networking and start NetWeaving. If you like the idea of community, then check out our SaaS founder community at championleadership.com. And you need to pick up a new book called From Grassroots to Greatness, 13 Rules to Build Iconic Brands with Community-Led Growth. You know, we've all seen how traditional marketing and even digital marketing is losing its edge. It's harder and harder to stand out. Features don't do it. Big personalities won't do it. Gimmicks may work temporarily, but you know, the the novelty of being the dancing bear kind of wears off. So how do you stand out? And that's where it comes down to community. I'm telling you, that's where it's at. We all want a place to fit in with people we have something in common with, common values, common bonds, common journey. Thriving community can be your biggest asset and even bigger than your brand. In his book, Lloyd Lobo lays out 13 rules to attract your own army of raving fans. I mean, it's your ultimate acquisition channel, brand differentiator, feedback source, retention lever, and catalyst for transformative change. You know, brands of yesterday were built on what they told you about themselves. But brands of the future, and I would even say brands of now, will be built on what the community says about them. Well, the book released just two days ago on Tuesday. I got my pre-ordered copy. You can grab yours at fromgrassrootstogreatness.com or go to Amazon. Our expert last Thursday was Erwin Howe, founder of Chromatics Website Design, an award-winning web design and conversion agency. Erwin laid out how to make your website and copy engage and convert better with a five C's framework. It was absolutely brilliant. It's an episode I've listened to, not just the first time, second time. I've gone back and listened to it four or five times. That's so, so good. And our founder on Tuesday was part one of my interview with Lloyd Lobo. Today, we continue that same conversation about community-led growth. Now, is it a strategy for your SaaS company? If so, how does it work? How do you do it well? And as a reminder, Lloyd is the co-founder of fintech platform Boast.ai. He leveraged the community-led growth model to bootstrap the company to 10 million in ARR, which he then exited and co-founded Traction, a community empowering more than 100,000 innovators through connections, content, and capital. He is the author of From Grassroots to Greatness, 13 Rules to Build Iconic Brands with Community-Led Growth. Welcome, champion of community-led growth himself, part two, Lloyd Lobo. We were getting hit up by a lot of investors during the COVID times and in the beginning, right? They needed to do something. So let's take more Zoom calls in person. At least you can do two a day. Zoom calls, you can do infinite a day. So I I started telling my wife like, hey, we're getting hit by a lot of investors. And she's like, listen, you've only ever been at failed companies before, right? And in route to the journey of building Boast, me and Alex did a couple other projects. We did a Automatically, which is a chatbot built on top of Zendesk. It was an AI chatbot in 2013, failed ahead of its times. And money was tight, so I joined the founding team of another startup called Speakeasy, which was incubated by Bessemer. And we were 
It was a it was a AI driven sales assistant tied to your call, and that blew through six million and failed. So now I've had like four sort of startup experiences that took money <laughs> that failed. And and so she told me you've only ever worked at failed startups, and Boast is just starting to do well. If you take investor money and go on and go on somebody else's zero sum game and it fails, I can't keep paying the bills and supporting the family. You gotta have to get a stable job at a large company. So, so that was in my mind. Alex was like dead against VC, and he's like, "We can take money if we can turn turn one to three, but remember what you're signing up for. Why do you want other partners in your marriage?" Kind of thing. And yeah. these guys dropped the golden and the magic words, like, "Hey, we're not traditional VCs." So I'm like, "What are you? Private equity?" And you know, my the first startup I was at was private equity funded and that went to crap anyway. And, and I saw how involved they were. And it works. It, everything works at a certain stage, right? There's a specific course. for your stage. There's a specific employee for your stage. If you jam it in the wrong stage, it doesn't work out because there's no alignment in how they think. Like what drives success for them is different than what drives success for you at that stage. So, so anyway, right. what are you? And then they said the word growth equity and I had no clue what growth equity was up until that point. And they're like, listen, we will liquidate the founders while still enabling you to keep significant equity in the company so you can de-risk in the short term and play the long game. And when I asked what numbers are you ballpark thinking at our revenue stage, my jaws dropped. I'm like, the first call I made when I hung up was called Alex. And he's like, okay, let me research and he says, man, this sounds, this sounds like a great opportunity. And so we embarked on that journey. And that was, that was the decision. We end up selling 52, 53 some odd percent of the company to Radiant Capital. Me and Alex still own almost 40% or so of the company or, or touch under now with some dilution. And the rest uh, is employee stocks. And if we hadn't bootstrapped the company this wouldn't be the journey, right? Like how many founders, right, they, right. they cashed out to do whatever they want on their time while still maintaining two board seats and, and still having a significant stake in the company and the upside. So that was, that was it. And, and, you know, I think the third life lesson there, right? So I said communication creation in terms of life lessons are really important. The third life lesson, which came full circle, was the power of, of community and luck. You know, I, I truly believe luck is the 10% that tips everything 90% in your favor. And luck and risk are, are pretty much same, mm. right, different sides of the same coin. How do you engineer luck, though? If we hadn't done that event in Toronto, uh, randomly, these investors wouldn't have come. If we hadn't built the community and had this community partners where we would reach out and say, hey, do you have any VCs who you recommend speaking? Right. That, that wouldn't have happened. So a bunch of things came together. And the only way you can orchestrate a bunch of things to come together or you know, engineer serendipity or luck is just by creating the environment and the network for it. If you don't leave your house, you're never, you know, you, you see people say that, oh, you know, it, it, the weather is never good. So I'm never going to leave the house. Well, if you never right, leave right. the house, how do you know if the weather is good or not, right? And so if you don't put exactly if you don't put yourself out there and bring people together, and so that was it. And and in orchestrating that community, you know, of course, communication is the rails for everything we do. Communication drives connection. Without communication, you have no community. You have an empty room. 
And and so I think in that order, communication, creation, right? Communication and creativity, and then bringing the community. And if you do that at a cadence, you can engineer luck and and everything else. And and you know, tying to what my grandfather said, the only way to create abundance in life is to help others without expecting anything in return. Is a very famous Zig Ziglar quote that I found out not too long ago. Is right. You'll get right. all you want in life if you help others without expecting anything in return. It's pretty much the same thing. Help other people get what they want and you'll never have to worry about getting what you want. Yeah. Exactly. So so back to that common framework then. So I left the day-to-day of boast. And what happened was I ended up getting depressed, man. I came into money, money that my family had never seen, right? And I should have been happy. I should have been ecstatic. But what happened was in the months that followed, I hit rock bottom. I got depressed. And I started going so crazy that I started calling random friends in different cities saying, hey, I'm showing up. And they're like, dude, we have work to do. I'm like, I don't care. Take time off. We'll fly here. We'll fly there. I'll pay for everything. And started making trips. And I started getting some speaking opportunities as a result. And so just traveling around and coupling them together. I ended up in Dominican. I ended up in Hawaii. I ended up in Dubai. went all over. And I still remember I was at a conference in Romania. And now this is the speaker after retreat, right? After conference, speaker retreat. And we're in the boonies, like four or five hours from Bucharest Airport. And it's two in the morning. And I'm frantically now calling the Uber. And the organizers and other speakers who had come from Silicon Valley are like, what are you doing? I'm like, listen, I'm calling an Uber. I'm like, at this hour, you're not going to get anyone here. Half hour later, finally, after multiple cancellations, one Uber shows up. I tell the Uber, just hold on a second. Just give me five minutes. I bring my bags. I book my ticket to Costa Rica. And I tell them, guys, bye. I have some friends in Costa Rica and they're calling me. And I take this flight to Costa Rica last minute. So I book a flight at two in the morning. That's a three, four hour drive to Bucharest for a 7.30 or 6.30. Wow. That's how crazy I became. And then one day my wife wakes me up and she's like, look at you, man. Like you're out of shape. You are insufferable. You've like living this life. It's, it's like, I don't know who you are. And she's like, you don't realize the glass is half full. You're moping that you're no longer in the company, but you have the opportunity to do anything and move anywhere. So why are you doing this? And, and you know, what had happened was, you know, all my life, I chased success looking for happiness. And when the money came, a few things followed. One is immediately after I got bilateral COVID pneumonia and almost died. And, wow. and I had not spent any time with the wife and kids, with the family. And she would always say, stop and smell the roses. And I'm like, we'll take everyone to Bora Bora when the deal goes to. And she, she'd say, we don't care about your Bora Bora. We care about spending phones down with you every day. The compound interest on that is huge. Not like your one Bora Bora. Yeah. People, your kids are going to forget it. And then, and then when that incident uh, happened, when the deal went through, we booked everyone to Bora Bora. But two days before Bora Bora, I got COVID pneumonia, bilateral COVID pneumonia. I was hospitalized, unable to breathe. And I just thought to myself, if I could go back in time, I'd spend more time with the family. What have I done here? Right. Uh, this is, this is the worst mm. I could have done. But then I got out of the hospital and I promised my kids that I'd spend more time with them. But that didn't happen. The company obviously came into money as well. And we went on to hire 80, 90 people. Things were chaotic. We were hiring some big company execs. And August, I think, of 21 rolls around. And my my daughter comes to me, who was like, I think, seven and a half or so at the time, seven, eight at the time. And she's like, Dad, you've gotten worse. 
And now I don't even see you at all. And she's like, why are you like this? And I said, listen, we've got so many people. It's chaotic. We got to make sure we do right by them. And she says to me, why don't you go and work for somebody who thinks like that so I can have my dad back? Two weeks. Wow. Now, imagine that's profound for, for an eight-year-old. And I think, you know, all my kids take after the mom. <laughs> she's, she's, she's a bright doc who got into med school in second year of undergrad without MCAT. So it's like, she's, she's like super bright. And <laughs> a couple of weeks later, after that conversation, I'm at an offsite in Austin with my co-founder and just discussing business and other things. And I pick up my phone and there's 20 missed calls from my wife's best friend. And she's like, you asshole. You do this for the third time. Your wife's in labor and you're not not here. And she's like, where are you? I'm like, I'm in Austin. I can't come until tomorrow. So I barely saw the birth of my third kid. And this happened like all three kids. Like I was some offsite somewhere, wow. just business. And then what was happening was, you know, I'm I'm the zero to one person, right? Risk. And I think, you know, I, I, had, I had a conversation with Jason Fried of Basecamp recently. And he said, founder and CEO is a title like having CTO and chief Luddite. A founder's job is to inject new risk. In <laughs> yeah. And, and a CEO's job is to stabilize the business. And it worked really well. Alex was the CEO of the company and he was always like, you know, stabilizing the business and making sure the company is stable and has money and financially sound because that's what you need to be as a bootstrap company. And my job as a founder president was injecting risk in the business, new products, new channels, new markets, bouncing off the walls. And we worked really well. And now we had all these new execs come in, like CTO from a $10 billion company, CMO, all these multi-billion dollar company execs. And I just wasn't gelling with them. And so I walked into a board meeting. And I'm like, listen, I think uh, these guys are not working out. You got to get rid of them. And they're like, oh, hold on. Why don't you take a paternity leave and take a break? You've had a very stressful year from like this due diligence process and COVID to like almost dying of COVID. And then you know, all this chaos, your new kid, take a paternity leave and we'll figure out the right role for you when you come back. And my heart sank, man. I went home that day and I hugged my wife and I literally cried for 10 minutes and I apologized. And I said, I'm sorry for all the times you needed me and I wasn't there. I put the company first and today I'm not needed and I'm not there. And and I, now that I... You know, fast forward eight months from that incident, I went on this partying rampage, trying to meet people because I felt like I lost my tribe, right? I was a community-oriented. I've yeah. only ever been a part of the community, right? The slums, the Gulf War, the HubSpot inbound community. And then when I built, the, you know, building the traction community to bootstrap boast, was doing startup weekend hackathons on the side. So only ever knew that. And I felt like I lost the community. So I was going crazy. And then when I come back from this Costa Rica trip, she's like, look at you right? You've become insufferable. If something happens to you, you're not going to get a second chance or a third mm. chance rather because COVID, surviving COVID was your second chance. You might not get a second, uh, third chance and your kids are going to left holding yeah. the bag. So that night I was, I was stressed and I look across the room and I see my Peloton bike, which had turned into this makeshift towel rack and it's been sitting there since probably 2018 or so. I hop on it, pick some random instructor and you know, her name is Robin Erzone. And I felt instant, instantly connected to her. She was coming off maternity leave, brought her vulnerable self and started saying, oh, I can't ride. I'm not strong. I feel weak. And then she yells out, self-pity is toxic. 
one shift, one crank, one right up mm. around the block. I am, I can with like eye of the tiger from Rocky playing and like all the wow. riders on the side of the peloton high-fiving each other. And that one ride zipped by, turned into two, turned into four. And then, you know, my life changed because peloton gave me a new community and I started making friends with fit people, healthy people. And Peloton gave me this lifeline and a new community to rely on. And so then fast forward a few months, I'm sitting here now with a lot of time on my hands, good health, time with the family. And I started to reflect back. And I said, the only time I hit rock bottom in life is when I didn't have a community. So I started mm. just rewatching all our traction content. I started talking to lots and lots of people, started looking into some of the biggest iconic brands on the planet and seeing like, you know, is this community thing just common to my journey? Or is it like something that is part of everyone else? Because I wanted to get my story out as a community-led person and the importance of community. But I'm like, you know... I'm not that famous of a person, right? Nobody knows me. Yes, it's an interesting story, but people will resonate more beyond just one person. So I started researching and looking and I found something very profound in every obscure idea from Christ to CrossFit that, that went from the seed of an idea to a global phenomenon. People listen to you, you have an audience. You bring that audience together to connect with one another and you have a community. Now you bring that community together to create impact that transcends your product or service or profits, an impact that ties to a bigger purpose and you have a movement. And that when that movement comes together through rituals and unwavering faith in its beliefs, it becomes a movement. So think about that for a second. Audience, community, movement, religion, or cult. Every enduring, iconic brand has had that journey is, is what I found in common. Yes, absolutely. And I said, aha, uh -huh, now I got the hook for a bigger book with lots of data, asking the same questions over and over again, and then distill the answers from those questions into 13 rules to build iconic brands with raving fans. And I also read some studies from uh, from this author um, uh, around the exponential organization. Have you have you heard of um, the 10x organization? Yes. So I, I forget the I think it's Dan Sullivan or uh, Salim maybe, and it, it's around creating like what are the key tenets of a 10x organization? So it's it's Salim and Peter Diamandis and Michael Malone. And one of the key things is community. Community and crowd is a key differentiator that not only turns your organization 2 or 3x, but 10x. And so yeah. we decided to write that book. And I said, through this, I'll also get my personal story out, but nobody cares about my personal story. And I tie it to everyone's journey across each chapter. And so that formulated the From Grassroots to Greatness 13 Rules to Build Iconic Brands with Community-Led Growth. And Jason Lemkin, who's been a longstanding mentor of mine, was gracious enough to write The Ford. And in The Ford, you know, he didn't just, didn't just write a CEO platitude in that Ford. He actually wrote about how they built Saster. That's great. 
Yeah, community is is definitely where it's at in, in building a company. And I love that about, you know, really bringing people together around a cause that's bigger than themselves. So it's really about that impact. It's about something bigger than, than just making money, than just, you know, doing doing something. But there's there's more and they want to be a part of that. And, and it's that the, the progression of uh, the community to a movement and, and beyond. And, and I think that's there's a lot to be said about that. Uh, how did you come up with the ideas in the book? I mean, 13, 13 ways, 13 like rules, iconic brands. Yeah, 13 rules. I kept asking the same questions. And that's the thing. If you want to find patterns, you got to keep asking the same questions. There's no way you'll find patterns if if you ask the, a different question every time, right? So I, I had a set of questions like, hey, how did you start your company? How did you start this company? How did you start the community? How did you seed it at the beginning? How did you sustain it? How did you make it sticky? How did you create experiences that made people come together? Were there any rituals or beliefs? How did you measure? How did you monetize? You could keep asking the same questions. When I kept asking the same questions, I found like these common rules, which were actually very similar, although we didn't have them as rules when we were starting Bose. But it was very similar to what we did is, you know, the, the first few ones are, you know, figure out your ICP and how do you really nail that down? Figure out the circle of influence around your ICP. Then figure out what kind of community you want to build. There's three kinds of communities. There's a community of practice, which is like the, you know, what you're building, what we built at Traction, which is helping other people learn about a craft and get better and better at it. There's a HubSpot sure. inbound community, which was initially all about becoming better digital marketers. There's a community of product, which is learning about your product, turning customers into evangelists, like the Atlassian community or the Microsoft community, GitLab community. Sure. And then there's a community of play, which is more coming together to have fun, like the Harley Davidson community or the Nike community. Now, if you're a B2B product and you don't have product market fit, don't build a product community or community of product because people think you're trying to sell to them, right? And you're not going to get feedback right, when right. you're product market fit. Build a community of practice that ties to this concept of falling in love with your customer and making them successful beyond your product or service. So what is that greater thing? For us, we started with saying we're going to automate our tax credits. But when we said, hey, if we want to form a community of practice, we got to think about what is the greater purpose here? What is the greater value? And our purpose was enabling innovators to change the world because every dollar spent in innovation returns 20 to the economy. Vaccines, robots, clean drinking water is a function of innovation. Yet 99% of the innovations die on the vine. In the last 15 years, more than 50% of the Fortune 500 companies have evaporated because they they don't right. have they either don't have the funding or the know-how to innovate. So our purpose was that helping innovators to change the world. Our vision became accelerating innovation, and our mission became providing them R&D analytics and R&D funding. Now, if we just said we'll automate tax credits and we just were about the product then I don't think we'd gone this far. So our product evolved from saying, we're going to automate your R&D government application for R&D funding. Then the governments were taking a long time. So we raised a $100 million fund to lend them money so they don't have to wait. Now we have unique, we have this unique data set, which is your R&D data and your payroll data. But to lend you money, we also have your banking data. So we have a 360 view of your R&D. So now we can give you interesting analytics on what projects you should invest in, who you should hire, and so on. Mm. So we went from being this 
tax credit company to becoming an R&D intelligence company just because it ties to the greater purpose. And that's why I said, right, customers don't buy products, they buy outcomes. You might have seen this product marketing graphic where Mario and there's a mushroom and they eat that, he eats the mushroom and he becomes Super Mario. And that the graphic says the mushroom is not your product. Super Mario is your product. That's what customers want. There you go. That's right. And and so figuring that out. And so then, you know, you figure out your ICP, you figure out the circle of influence, figure out your purpose that transcends the product or a profit, figure out the vision, which is what the world will become as a result of your existence, the mission, how you do it, and the values. And also what I found in community-led companies were six common values, which is connection, autonomy, mastery, purpose, energy, and recognition. If you are controlling, you can't build a community-led company. It's about giving people autonomy. If you don't have a purpose that transcends your profits, you can't build a community-led company. Energy is really important because if there's no energy, then just people get drained out. And with the right amount of energy, even in the most stressful times, people are pumped to go. Like, like you see people in like marathons at the last mile. And then yeah. recognition. If you don't recognize people proactively, it's hard to make them show up, keep showing up and coming back for more. So community-led companies are where people give beyond the product or profits because they tie to the greater purpose. And so we found those community-centric values that were common to these companies. And then the rest is about bringing people together, right? You've identified the ICP, the circle of influence, the type of community that's relevant to build your purpose, which is your forever, your vision, your mission, your values, and make sure that you have alignment around community-centric values. Then it is, how do I build an audience through content? How do I bring that audience together to build communities? How do I figure out purposes that we can bring this audience together to create a movement? And then lastly, what are the rituals needed? What are some of the biggest, most iconic brands? What are the rituals they've done to turn their beliefs into unwavering faiths and become cult-like phenomenons? So those are the things we explored uh, through the book. But I mean, I gave you some of the cliff notes on the early things because you're not going to create a cult or a movement tomorrow. Boast didn't create a movement. Right. Right. We, right. We, we are at a community. It's a long journey ahead. But at least if you figure out your ICP, figure out the circle of influence, identify the kind of community you want to build, and then uh, understand that what values are needed to build a long-term sustainable community, then you, you're on your way, you have a head start, then you can just create content for this ICP. And the content literally comes from, you've gone and talked to them. You understand the white space. Mm. You've, you know, 100, 200 yeah. burning questions that will help them get to their aspiration or goal. Think if I had to write the ultimate guide to this, and you've, you know this better than anyone else, you're a masterful author. So, you know, if I had to write a book on this topic, what would be the, key chapters, the sub chapters and the tactics in there and now start creating that content. And the rest is about communication, creation and consistency. Without that, you will have an empty room. Yeah, that's right. I think it's really interesting, the three types of uh, community strategies. And, and you mentioned, you know, the one that, that we do at Champion Leadership Group, very much community of practice, but it's also has some some pretty strong elements of play as well. So I think that that's really important as entrepreneurs that, that we we do things outside of work, have interest and have 
that's where I think you really build a lot of really strong relationships is in doing things that are fun and get out of your head and, and into, into life. Exactly. So you just know, didn't know what that was called. Practice and play. That's really interesting. You know, play is a great example with like Harley Davidson, right? So Harley Davidson almost went bankrupt in the eighties. Yes. Community became a company strategy, not a marketing strategy. And this is what a lot of people are doing right now. It's like, oh, I want to build a community. Do I start a Facebook group, a Slack group, a Discord group? Oh, you know, who should I hire in marketing? No, this is a company strategy. Dharmesh at HubSpot, you know, there's a $20 billion company was the first, you know, community builder, right? The whole exec team were involved in building the community. Gainsight, yeah. Nick Mehta, he's like CEO and head of community. Community is a company strategy. The, the president of Harley had direct oversight on this community. Employees went out and started writer clubs. They became part of those communities. The writers became employees. They started hosting events and bringing people together and done consistently over time. A Save Harley movement erupted. And today, yeah, they raise money for breast cancer and autism. And that's how, that's how you do it, right? They have a ritual, which is get together every weekend. And initially, maybe those rituals require external triggers where you're messaging them and saying, show up, show up. When it becomes a cult-like brand, the triggers for the rituals are not external anymore. They're internal. It's like yes. oh, staunch religious people, they got to wake up at a certain time and pray, right? It's not an external trigger. For me, growing up, my mom had to remind me, right? Like, come on, like we're, she, she's a very staunch Catholic. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm, I was like, oh, mom, right? But like, how did that, how did she become that way? Initially, it started with reminders likely from her parents. And eventually through rituals, she developed unwavering faith in, in those beliefs, in those practices. And it became an internal trigger to do that ritual. And that was Harley's Weekend Warriors Right. And so think about deliberately yep. how you can do that. And if you do that, you will build a successful, not only community, but you'll build a cult like brand. Right. That's, that's the reason why Red Bull has <laughs> vodka Red Bull. <laughs> Nobody says vodka. Exactly. Vodka Coke. Nobody says <laughs> vodka ginger. It's like vodka Red Bull is a thing. Right. And there's different ways to engineer it, like CrossFit. Is a ritual workout of the day, rain or shine. It's workout yep. of the day. Try arguing with a, with a, Crossfitter or a Bitcoiner, and they'll cut you, right? It's gone from yes. audience. <laughs> yes, they will. Audience to community to movement to religion in many ways. Yeah. So a lot of SaaS founders are listening right now. What are the things, you know, it's just thinking about starting a community, maybe sounds overwhelming, maybe sounds really interesting. What are some things that they can do? Practical steps. How do they get started? How do they build a community? and commit to do that? And what are the steps to, to make that happen? Definitely. So I think, you know, I think the step one, like I said, is figure out your underserved niche. Just write it down. What are the pains? What are the goals? What are the needs? What are the aspirations? Write down who do they fund? Who do they frequent? They, they follow. Draw their circle of influence. Figure out your community values if you have them, if you want to give. If you if you can't give, if you don't care, if you care about control, if you don't don't have energy, you don't have a purpose. Don't force it because there's cheaper ways to grow. Community takes a long time. Figure out the kind of community mm, you yeah. want to build. I like that mix of practice and play. We do some of that at Traction as well. Then start creating this audience through content. And I'll, you know, I'll leave you with this uh, as a starting point, right? So write down those 100 burning questions that your niche audience has. So you have a repository of ideas. Think if you're writing a book for that 
purpose for that aspiration, what it would be about the chapters, subchapters, and the topics. The easiest way, honestly, and this this will help you in many, many ways beyond content creation, it'll help you engineer a network. It's like what you and I are doing. You have this list of influencers because you've drawn the circle of influence. Invite people, start a podcast, right? And I would urge you not only sure. to start an audio podcast, start a video podcast because take once you have this podcast, turn the long form video for YouTube, post the audio to podcast, turn the highlights of the video into shorts for YouTube, Insta Reels, TikTok, take the text and make a detailed post. Don't just post links. I see a lot of people post YouTube links on, on LinkedIn. LinkedIn doesn't like that, right? Don't, don't take people off platform. Post a summary of 10 things I learned about XYZ to get you to mm, ABC result good. on LinkedIn. And then post the link in the comments. Then turn a series of these videos maybe into like a course on Maven or something. So now you've got one piece of content into multiple forms of content. You can turn it into a book like, like I'm doing with, with uh, From Grassroots to Greatness. Right. Then, you know, make sure you have a weekly newsletter. So you're sending it out because the platforms are good to distribute your content. The platform is not good at owning your audience. The only way to own your audience is to build a community. The platform will never help you own your audience because how are you going to get their emails? Right. YouTube, even your podcast, it's, it's really bad. And so early on, actually, before we even did the podcast or YouTube, we heavily invested first in creating an audience through email newsletter and, and in-person events. And that's why the list is so big because now at least I have the email. If I didn't have email, most of our growth has come through email. Whether it's traction, whether it's boast, even the book, right? So I think, I think that is very important is like, how do you own your audience? So make sure you have some way to collect emails and you're just not building audiences on third-party platforms. And that's why I like this concept of if you're hosting interviews, open it up. Ask people if they'll join, send a registration link and get them to register in exchange for access to the content or maybe they can join live, right? If they share their email, right. email in exchange for the content, now you have their email. If that email becomes, hey, not only will you get this content, but for the first 100 people, you can join live and ask questions and then we're going to shut down the AMA so no more people. So now you've incorporated FOMO into it and you've, you've given this invite-only aspect. And so people will start joining live and they'll interact with one another and your speaker and you have remnants of a community. Then, you know, start bringing people together. Chat groups, online AMAs, all of that is good. But nothing is a substitute for in-person events. And you don't have to do these. Right. You, don't, you don't have to do these massive we don't have to do one big Saster a year or one big traction conference a year, which is a thousand people and takes like eight months to plan. You can just say, hey, I'm hopping in this city and we're going to do a meetup, champion leadership meetup in this city and just do a dinner with some pizza and bring some sophisticated people. If 10 people show up, it's easier to do 10 person dinners and invite champions who are um, other influencers in your community to co-host with and do it every week when it's like, on a week's notice because people look at their email anyway. For a conference, you got to invest the time right. buying a ticket in two days. For a dinner, it's like a week before, hey man, Jeff's showing up and I, him and I are going to host this champion leadership dinner. You want to show up. And that cadence around that over a year is like now 52 events, right? 
and word of mouth spreads, more people join your newsletter and you have this then you have this beautiful cadence as you're building this community, which is around maybe daily you have social posts on LinkedIn, weekly you have a newsletter and a podcast, monthly you have a meetup, eventually that turns into an invite only quarterly retreat and maybe an annual conference. And then your brand builds, recognition follows you, you get the social proof, you've got content across multiple channels and um, your business proliferates as a result. That's fantastic. A lot of people don't think about the simple things and that's uh, dinners have been one of the greatest like micro events for us and just go into a city and getting 10 or 12 people together. It's really easy. There's no planning. And, and those are some of the most impactful times because a lot of times the people don't know each other and then they do afterwards, but it's, it's really just building relationships, building that community and magic happens. Exactly. And if you look at it, right, um, apart from maybe a couple of rare communities, coming together in person is a big part of it. And I actually can think even like with Bitcoin, people were doing a lot of meetups and conferences in person to proliferate that idea. But if any any major religion, if it didn't bring people together in person and then pushed, pushed them towards a path of creating a greater impact that was beyond the beliefs of their their community, I don't think it would turn into a religion. You can't like it's mm. it's the power of senses. I talk about this in the the science behind senses, taste, touch, smell, beyond sound and sight, and how how you can use that and infuse that into your experiences to create uh, sort of experiences that bond people together. Very good. Well, where can people learn more about? From Grassroots to Greatness. From Grassroots. And get a copy of the book. Yeah, from Grassroots to Greatness.com. Kept it simple because my name is hard to pronounce, right? So there's a LloydLobo.com as well, but my mom put an E in my name. And growing up, I was bullied a lot. So I asked her, why do you have this E in my name? Because nobody can pronounce it. And it is Lloyd. And she's like, I always wanted you to be a businessman. And I knew that if you went that route, you would never be able to trademark a typical English name like Lloyd. So I threw an E in there. So now you can trademark that name. And, and then somebody told me recently that probably E stands for entrepreneur. <laughs> but hey, there you go. LloydLobo.com or from grassroots to greatness.com is where you'll find the book and follow me on LinkedIn. I respond to all DMs and, uh, you know, I, if I can help, I'll, I'll, I may not be able to always hop on a call, but I'll share you some links or resources or asynchronously respond. So follow me on LinkedIn. I post interesting content around bootstrapping, tactical advice on bootstrapping, building a company, building a community, et cetera. Outstanding. And you do. You post great content all the time. So we'll make sure and link everything in the show notes. Be sure to get your copy. The book is From Grassroots to Greatness, 13 Rules to Build Iconic Brands with Community-Led Growth. Awesome, Jeff. I think I'm late for another right. pod. <laughs> uh, no worries. Well, Lloyd, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. We did an hour and a half. I, I felt bad. I'm like, dude, I probably was rambling. I'm sorry to sorry to stretch it. Thanks again, Lloyd, for being on the show all this week. Two episodes in a row. We've never done that before. So I'm really excited about that. And I appreciate you sharing your insights and resources. And the book is fantastic as well. You can learn more about Lloyd and get the blueprint to build your community at From Grassroots to Greatness.com or hop over to Amazon and get it. It's on the bestseller list. All links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sassfuel.com. And of course, check us out on YouTube as well. Subscribe or follow us there. And everyone who subscribes this week gets a community set. 
brew a pot, and watch as a group of like-minded people magically appear to discuss your favorite topics. Side effects may include, I don't know, lively debate and uh, too many dad jokes and maybe even more puns. Join us again next Tuesday where our founder is Alexander DeRitter, co-founder, visionary, and CTO at Inc., the world's first AI-powered content optimization software. Alexander crafts magical tools for web marketing and loves to study the how and the why humans and AI make decisions. So if you want a glimpse of the future of AI, where we're headed with AI, Alexander's been doing this for years and you will be blown away with his predictions of the future. And next week on our SaaS Fuel Expert Series, we have another visionary serial entrepreneur and idea guy, Eric Holzclaw, founding partner and chief strategist at Liger one of Inc. 5000's fastest growing companies. So I will see you next time. And as always, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SaaS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sassfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.